And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective Live podcast. I am joined in the room uh, by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton. I was reading your column in The Athletic. It was excellent, as always. I had a, a lot of uh, interesting information about uh, Drew Smith, which I, who, that I want to talk about a little bit later. Um, but there was a little Easter egg in there. There was a, a bit of information I was not expecting. Um, and I was it, – it's minutia, but I was surprised that you didn't comment upon it. Was there anything in there that you wanted to note that, that you cut out for length? Um, possibly there, there was another Not note in the that Drew I, Smith section, not in the it, Drew Smith section later in the piece. There, there was another note that I'm holding on to for later, but I, I don't, I, you know, I'm not sure where you're going with this. Luis Guillorme has never been hit by a pitch. Oh, that is true. Well, it, well, you, I, in, in the last three seasons, I didn't actually check if he'd been hit earlier than that. He has never in his major league career been hit by pitch, and that surprised me. Um, and I, I was curious how w- whether my, uh, I guess my radar was was correct to be surprised, and I think I think it was. Um, among active position players, he is second behind only Akil Badu uh, um, among players who have never been hit by a pitch in plate appearances. Um, there are a handful of pitchers. Uh, who went their entire careers without being hit by pitch. Adam Wainwright is the active leader in plate appearances among uh, players who never got hit by a pitch. Uh, Jacob deGrom will finish his career, barring any pinch hitting mishaps. Jacob deGrom will finish his career without ever having been hit by a pitch. Um, But so I I looked into the the historical data, and here's what what was really fascinating to me, uh, and no one else. But fascinating to me, and maybe you, and so that's why I'm sharing this. Uh, in terms of careers, we, uh, guys who went their entire careers without being hit by a pitch, one guy um, among all players, he is the leader among all players ever, and he is also among all players since the end of the dead ball era, he is the leader by 1,300 plate appearances uh, <laughs> of, of like just just far and above. Like he had he finished his career with 3,664 plate appearances with without ever being hit. And the second guy on the list uh, since the dead ball era is 2,325. So 1,339 plate appearances above the second guy, uh, you know, more like 50 percent more. Uh, do you have any guesses? I will say it is a player. You have heard of, I'm certain, based on your age and having grown up watching the Mets. He never played for the Mets, um, and he is otherwise about the least notable baseball player I could possibly <laughs> think of. 
Well, when you say like the the first person who came to mind uh, was a guy who who did play for the Mets. When you said least notable, I have, I have to come up with now someone else. Um, Thirty six hundred plate appearances, so that's like mm-hmm. six full seasons. But I'm guessing uh, he played like eight or nine seasons with with fewer than six hundred plate appearances. Uh, what what? So what, when I was a kid, like '90s player. God, you put me on the spot, uh, Eddie Perez. No, but you're pretty close. You're pretty close. Uh, Mark Lemke went his entire <laughs> career, 3,664 plate appearances, was never hit by a pitch. He was, and, he, and on top of that, he had about 250 postseason plate appearances, never got hit by a pitch in any of those, uh, never got hit by a pitch in AAA, uh, did get hit in the low minors a handful of times. But that guy is by far the most skilled player in baseball history at getting out of the way. <laughs> And he, maybe that served him well as a second baseman as well. Like he was never taken out by a Chase Utley slide. There. Absolutely. That's uh, yeah. Uh, Nolan Ryan also won his entire career without ever being hit by a pitch. Nearly <laughs> a thousand plate appearances. Not surprising on that one. <laughs> no, no one decided to to take out retribution on Nolan Ryan after him coming in high and inside. That's uh, that's surprising. Yeah, I think that if you were the opposing pitcher, pitcher, and and Ryan played, you know, it, it's easy to forget, but Ryan's entire stint with the Astros, they were a National League team, so he did hit quite a bit. Um, I think if you're an opposing pitcher, you are, uh, you're just not throwing the ball anywhere near inside to Nolan Ryan. <laughs> you're going to have to hit too, and that's Nolan Ryan. And you're gonna you're going to lose the subsequent beanball war in that instance. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, you you will lose because Nolan Ryan is clearly impervious to pain. He threw like 400 innings every year with 400 strikeouts and 200 walks. Um, we have this is a this is our third now live chat. Uh, there are some people coming into the room, which is exciting. Uh, I don't believe anyone has yet requested to join us on stage, but please do. Uh, we are here to take your questions. Uh, I need to sign into the chat here, and I should probably tweet this out. So while I do both of those things, um, can you tell me what you've learned about Drew Smith? Yeah, so so Drew Smith, who has been kind of you know on the cusp of being a major league contributor for several years, you know, part of the the, the return for the for Lucas Duda in, in 2017. And when the Mets were selling off a lot of pieces from their 2015 and 2016 playoff teams uh, and mostly getting back uh, relievers who had some potential, but we weren't sure where, where it was going to go. Drew Smith is really the only guy. Uh, he's the only guy still here with the Mets uh, from from that sell off, I believe. Uh, and the only you know, he showed some potential in 2018, but of course, had Tommy John surgery in 2019, had some shoulder issues last year, has pitched well when he's been in the major leagues, but it just hasn't been. Uh, a lot of time in the majors. Uh, and so uh, it's been interesting that, the, you know, his first couple outings this year have been in a, you know, slightly higher leverage, but in particular on Tuesday against Philadelphia. And, you know, he's a guy who has always been pretty good against left-handed hitters. Um, and part of that is because of his curveball and his changeup as his secondary pitches. Uh, he added a cutter in 2020 that, that was pretty effective against lefties. Uh, but he, you know, he's talked about kind of just his delivery being difficult for lefties to pick up. Jeremy Hefner mentioned that his fastball has a specific kind of ride that's difficult for lefties. Um, but they wanted him to be good against righties also. Uh, and so he's messed around with his his cutter, made it more of a slider pitch. Uh, same grip, but just throws it differently, kind of more over the top to get depth to it. Uh, and it's looked like it's been pretty effective so far this year. He's throwing it a lot. He's throwing it uh, 45% of the time, basically. Uh, and, you know, has 
pitched. I think he's got three, three and two thirds innings, two hits, six strikeouts to start the year, and in a, in a bullpen that you know is looking for someone else to join that late inning group of uh, Edwin Diaz, Trevor May, and Seth Lugo. You know, Smith being able to get righties and lefties out could be a separator for him from. You know, Joely Rodriguez has gotten lefties out so far, but struggled, obviously, against righties. Gave up the big home run to JT Real Muto. Adam Adovino, who I think a lot of people assumed would be that next guy in line, uh, you know, hasn't pitched poorly or anything, but has always been much more effective against righties than lefties. Uh, and then, you know, Chase and Treve has also pitched reasonably well so far, but hasn't been given kind of the same opportunity at this point. You know, the, the Mets are kind of looking for that other person who can fill in, you know, especially when Diaz is out on bereavement or Trevor May is out for a couple of days to be that other arm late in the game, especially if you're going up against a string of left-handed hitters with, you know, a, a left-right-left situation like the Mets have run into with Philadelphia. And Smith is a guy who maybe can fit that role more than you'd expect from a usual right-handed reliever. Yeah, and it's, um, I mean, it's obviously extraordinarily, or not, it's it's not extraordinary. It's just extremely early in the season. Uh, no one in the Mets bullpen has yet faced more than 15 opposing hitters. Uh, it's hard to buy too much into any of the stat lines so far, but Joely Rodriguez, I, I think the early the early returns you mentioned hasn't allowed a hit to a lefty yet. Uh, one walk, but but they're 0 for four. Again, he's faced 11 hitters, um, so it's hard to, to go too crazy about it. But uh, you don't feel great about uh, how he's looked against the right-handers. Yeah, you know, he's a guy who's always had kind of those distinct splits between lefties and righties, uh, and those have shown up even more so in high leverage spots, uh, you know, like Mondays when, you know, he gets Schwarber and Harper out around JT Romuto, but he gives up a two-run homer in the middle, uh, and that's not uh, helpful in that situation. Uh, and so that was the, you know, when the Mets made the deal for Rodriguez, I think that was your concern was, is he good enough against righties in the era of a three-batter minimum to be effective late in games when he's got to face a left-right-left trio uh, and he, it didn't work out the first time. Uh, you know, it's still, again, it's so early in the season. If you remember correctly, uh, last year, Aaron Loop's first outing also in Philadelphia did not go well. Trevor May's first outing in Philadelphia didn't go well. Uh, you know, there's, there's ways that the season can evolve from this point. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, you'd have more confidence in the bullpen if the Mets were sitting here at 7-0 and had closed out two eighth inning leads on Sunday and Monday. Yeah, um, we, we have a couple of people waiting to join us on stage. We also have some questions in the chat to one of them. Um, someone, someone asked about uh, minor league solutions to the bullpen issue. Um, I think the obvious answer that comes up to that one is, is Colin Holderman, who we saw a lot in, in spring training. But I think, the, um, to me, the, the more obvious answer is that if these were, first of all, the, the roster is expanded. So um, this is the, not just like the first 13 guys or 12 guys on your pitching staff. They have uh, all 15 with them. If I, if I'm not wrong, or 14 guys, how many, how many guys in the, on the pitching staff? Right now? It's, it's a 14 man pitching staff so far. Okay. So, you know, they have the, the, the 14 top guys on their depth chart right there already there. Um, and I would say if those are the right guys to break camp with, I, I don't think, and, and it was a special, it's a different situation because it was a short spring training and it's a new manager and a lot of new faces. I get all that. but um, and, and obviously there are roster considerations to make as well. But uh, generally speaking, I would say if you decided at the end of spring training that these are your best 14 guys, there should be nothing that happens across seven games that changes your mind. Yeah, I mean, it's 
it's way too early to make those kinds of assessments. I think, you know, the on on May second when the that roster pairs down and has to get down to twenty six, you know, uh, an outing like Sean Reed Foley's on on Wednesday when he comes in in, in an eight one game and struggles for his two thirds of an inning, you're kind of expecting him to give you length, maybe two innings out of that, and he doesn't even get out of the one. He's the guy who who was probably the last man in that bullpen uh, when they're making the opening day roster. He's out of options, uh, so you know you for him to to be a part of this bullpen longer term, he's he's got to pitch better than he did on Wednesday, for instance. Um, you know, if you're talking about options uh, in the minor leagues, you mentioned Holderman, who pitched very well for most of spring training, didn't pitch well that I think his last outing in spring training, but struggled last year in the Arizona Fall League with his command. You know, the the fastball is up at 99, which is really nice. Uh, he's got to control it a little bit better. Uh, the other guy that, that could be of interest, especially if you're you're harping on issues from the left side, is Thomas Zapucky, who is in the rotation in AAA Syracuse. But I think the thought has been for a little while now that, that in order for him to be uh, effective in the major leagues, it's probably going to come out of the bullpen. Uh, and they're in a situation where, you know, that's probably the quickest path for him to get to the major leagues at this point is out of a bullpen. Uh, so he could be an option later in the season. Uh, depending on how they're doing against lefties and, and how healthy he is and how, how he's uh, holding up physically, because that's been the, the key issue with him uh, over the course of his professional career. Those are the, the two guys that come to mind. I mean, you've got Felix Pena has been with the Mets on the taxi squad the first road trip. Uh, he's a guy who, like Holderman, is not on the 40-man roster at the current moment. Uh, Yohan Lopez is a guy that they claimed uh, late in spring training who's got some, some major league experience, same with Adonis Medina. Like Those are, are guys that, that could play roles here, but none of them are, are people you project to uh, come up to the team and start throwing seventh and eighth innings for you anytime soon. A point I want to make about Holderman before we bring on our first guest um, is just that I think, and I've tweeted this, I don't think I mentioned it on the show, it would be uh, a really cool thing, I think, to have a good setup reliever named Holderman. <laughs> I mean, um, what, would, what would happen if he emerged as really your best reliever and he needed to start getting closer do time? Like, do you have to, yeah. just have to keep him in the eighth anyway? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's it's like you know, you are you're messing with destiny if you take him <laughs> out of the the middle to late innings. Benjamin H has been waiting patiently. I will bring him on. Benjamin H, welcome to the Metrospective hey. Live Q and A. What's going on? What's up, guys? Hey, Benjamin. Um, I have a, it's a Francisco Alvarez question for you. So obviously we don't want to like assume he's going to keep raking at the level he is now, but like say that we go a month or two in and it seems that his bat is just, he, he needs to go to AAA for the bat. Um, how does that kind of work for progressing his glove and his defense? Cause I know one of the things with him is like, maybe the bat's a bit ahead of the glove and the Mets really want him to be that franchise catcher going forward. Um, so how does that work? Is it is there a real difference between developing as a catcher in Double A versus Triple A? That's an that's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, if he keeps it up with the bat at this pace, he's going to hit like 135 home runs or something like that, uh, and and an e- equivalent amount of doubles, uh, which is uh, just an a, absurd start that he's had so far in Double A. You know, I, I think uh, if if we're sitting here, you know, the Mets have been pretty uh, aggressive with promoting him in the past. We saw that last year where he started the year in St. Lucie and then. I think it was like 15 games or so into the season. Uh, they bumped him up because it, it was just clear that that high that um, a ball pitching was was not enough for him uh, in terms of a challenge. Uh, we could get to that point uh, with double A double A versus triple A. I, I don't think there there's that much of a difference between what the development 
uh, of him defensively at double A would be versus what it would be at triple A. You know, so if he's got a 1200 OPS uh, on May 15th uh, in double A, it wouldn't surprise me if they, they tried to bump him up to triple A. Um, but, you know, I, I think the idea of him being kind of the starting catcher in the major leagues by the end of the season is still, uh, regardless of how good he's been with the bat so far, still a, a bit unrealistic because as we've talked about, there's just, there's really uh, no instances of guys at his age being everyday catchers for a generation. The last guy is Yvonne Rodriguez and Yvonne Rodriguez, Hall of Fame catcher uh, and defensively precocious in a way that uh, almost no one has been since uh, and certainly not Alvarez. So I, I know we had another question in the chat about like what it would take to, to trade James McCann at the trade deadline to make room for Francisco Alvarez. That's not going to happen. Uh, even if even if they want Alvarez to come up, it would probably probably be splitting time with someone like McCann. Uh, and that is the uh, brightest scenario for Alvarez and the Mets this year. Um, that, that's probably something worth looking into, though, like the distinct differences between developing as a catcher in AAA versus AA. Uh, I don't think there's a huge difference, but... Uh, you know, there, there might be one that I'm overlooking. I would have to, I would have to imagine it would have something to do with the coaching staff, right? Like, I, if there's a guy they really like that he's working with, it, and and I apologize for not having the not having this detail, but uh, whether it's a you know a roving catching instructor type guy that you can just have hang out with Francisco Alvarez all year, or uh, a guy they like in Double A, you know, who who knows? Um, but I would think you know, and based on at least based on the reputation of the leagues and things have shifted around uh, a little bit. Um, at least I always think, you know, double A, you get uh, far less polished pitching, you know, guys who have the, the live arms and the upside, but, but aren't yet ready for the major leagues. Whereas in, in triple A, you tend to get a lot more of the, uh, you know, more polished and, and uh, more, I guess, professional, more veteran pitchers uh, who would have more pitches to work with. Um, and I, to me, seem like a, maybe a better match for a developing catcher. I, mean, I, I don't know. That's just speculation, I guess. Yeah, I mean, in AAA, you're working with guys with major league experience and who know what they want to do and, and how they want to go about it. Uh, you know, they're just they're guys who don't execute their plan quite as, as well as they want to to be in the major leagues. Uh, whereas, yeah, in AA, you've got a lot more raw material, a lot of your, you know, guys who might be more talented or have higher ceilings, uh, but haven't yet corralled that into actual plans or anything like that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, let's take, uh, Benjamin, thank you for the question. You're still in here. Uh, yeah, so thank thanks you. guys. Uh, I will now kick you out. Sorry. Um, uh, and we will bring on Jeremy. Oh, uh, Jeremy, what is going on? Hey, Jeremy. thank you for having me. Yeah. 
Can you hear me? Yeah, we can. Yeah, we got you, Jeremy. Awesome. So I guess it's another player development question, but thinking back about a decade ago, like when Mike Trout came up, it kind of seems like he was a once in a lifetime young player and he probably still is. But when we look at like Juan Soto and like Tatis and Vlad Jr., um, are we just in a golden age or is there something specific going on with player development that they're just turning out better hitters? Um, that's a really good question. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, we, because it, it's interesting because I feel like I've heard from people in the majors at various junctures over the last decade, uh, which is the only decade I've been covering Major League Baseball, uh, that the gap between AAA and the majors is as wide as it's ever been. Uh, and that, you know, you have guys who have succeeded at AAA come up to the majors and look absolutely lost. When I, when I covered the Red Sox, you know, a uh, guy like Xander Bogarts, who had looked really good in AAA, came up to the majors, looked really good for a brief postseason run in 2013, and then was just totally lost in 2014. Uh, they had other guys who, who uh, dominated the AAA level and, and struggled to adapt uh, in the major leagues. And then they had, you know, later on, guys like Andrew Benintendi and Rafael Devers, who skipped AAA entirely and held their own uh, in the majors for playoff teams. So uh, it does seem like, I, I feel like it's a common talking point that the gap between the minors and the majors is as big as it's ever been. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be playing out that way. Juan Soto, I mean, Ted, you might remember, I don't think he played above high A uh, in the yeah, minors yeah. before debuting uh, in the major leagues. So, uh, you know, there are, I think there's so much more. There, there's just uh, a crazy amount of, of young talent in the game. Uh, and there has been for the last five or six years. Uh, I think teams are more willing uh, when they're not uh, holding down service time to give those guys a chance in the major leagues at a younger age uh, and to, to run with it. Um, and so we've seen, you know, uh, Trout in 2012 uh, hit the ground running, you know, after a brief period in 2011 where he struggled. Same with Aaron Judge when he came up. Like, there's that first period where a guy struggles maybe, um, but then uh, just kind of becomes an MVP candidate right off the bat, like Tatis has. Uh, you know, Vlad Guerrero took a little bit. Uh, didn't didn't um, blossom quite the way everyone expected his first year up uh, with Toronto. Um, it, you know, it's hard for me to say without the context of – Knowing what was going on in, in baseball development in the 90s and the 2000s, I think the big player development story of the last seven or eight years is taking kind of the J.D. Martinez's of the world, reworking their swing uh, and making them into stars. Same, you know, Max Muncy is is the other one that comes to mind. Uh, Turner. But, yeah, Justin Turner. Like those kinds of guys rehaul, overhauling themselves through player development. But I think now that some of those principles have seeped down into a kind of an organizational uh, organization-wide ideas, uh, maybe they, they are preparing guys to be ready to, to hit the ground running in the majors in a way that they weren't in the past. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to, I think, around the time Trout came up, but I remember reading, um, I'm pretty sure it was a baseball perspective, and I wish I could dig up the article now, but it's, it, I'm, not, I'm not finding it, um, that players don't, don't peak the way we used to expect them to. I think, uh, you know, traditionally, and, and certainly still hear it a lot in terms of fantasy um, and, you know, players still are at very much at their best around age 26, age 27, but it used to be um, a more distinct growth curve. When If a guy came in at 21, 22, he sort of slowly got better until 25, 26, 27 when he'd hit uh, his prime seasons. Nowadays, you more often see players coming into the league seemingly as, as finished products. And um, I would have to guess that has something to do with uh, teams being better at determining which guys are going to succeed in the major leagues and also 
uh, player development in general just being so much better. Like I think, and and, uh, and so much more, so much more focused uh, on optimizing these guys. I think that probably you know, for as lousy as uh, many of the life conditions still are for minor league players, I think that they're probably getting. Um, better, more data-driven instruction, and with all 30 clubs at this point, and so you are, um, and and you know, and taking that into their off-season workouts, guys are. Um, it's absurd that they're expected to, and it's absurd that they're not paid. Um, but whereas you know, maybe in the 80s and 90s, minor league players working off-season jobs are just working those off-season jobs. Uh, now these guys are doing it while also you know maintaining a professional athlete uh, workout load, and so. Uh, I think you just get players that are that are readier than ever before for for the big league uh, competition. Yeah, and I, I think you know the the day to day routine in the minor leagues mirrors more of that in the major leagues. Like I, I you know, for the story today, I talked to Mark Canna about how he's getting used to a bunch of pitchers that he's never seen before, and he's talking about looking at video, uh, but not trying to do too much on video because you can kind of get paralysis that way. Uh, and I was, I was asking him, you know, was that a, something you had to learn over time? He goes, oh, yeah, like when I got to the major leagues, uh, you know, I didn't really have video in the minors to the same extent. And you get to the majors and you're like, oh, I can look at anything. Uh, and you kind of go, you can dive too deep into it. Um, now we have, I think, you know, most guys in the minor leagues, especially the upper levels of the minor leagues, have access to the kind of video scouting that they do in the major leagues. So none of that feels unfamiliar to them. Uh, right when they get there, they're they're used to doing the same kind of scouting reports. They've got more of their own routine down by the time they get to the majors to make it feel less unfamiliar, maybe. Uh, that was a great question. Thank you, Justin, for it. Uh, Nick P. is waiting to speak. Nick P., you are uh, on the stage. Hi, how's it going, guys? How are you, Nick? Uh, so first, I, I think uh, Luis Guillermo will go his entire career without getting hit by a pitch <laughs> because uh, he'll just he'll catch anything that comes to him. <laughs> Fair. Uh, so my question is, you know, the last couple of years, we've had a, a, a very different story kind of even coming out of the first week with the baseball type. You know, a couple of years ago was the, the juice ball and last year the dead ball and the sticky stuff. Uh, so I'm wondering whether in the first week here you've seen any, you know, sort of undisputable difference in the way that the game is played itself. Uh, I don't. I don't think we've seen that yet. I, I did see someone on Twitter putting up a, a stat that some, you know, that barrels on average are not traveling the same distance as they did last year. Although there were other people disputing whether you know that was just a kind of an aggregation thing where the certain line drives, of course, do not travel as home runs if they're hit at different launch angles, and whether the overall statistic was too broad to to really get anything out of. I, th- I think you've got to wait. In <clears throat> you know, this is the time of year where. You get a lot of analysis that's like, oh, and this stat stabilizes quickly. Most stats still don't stabilize within seven games. Uh, so I think you've got to wait a little bit longer to see, um, you know, where things are heading. You know, I like, you know, by May, maybe you get a better sense for how this year the ball plays in April versus last year in April. You've got to remember 2020 didn't have April baseball uh, with the weather um, and, and kind of how that plays into how, how the ball travels and those kinds of things. You know, I know hit by pitches are up, not just for the Mets, but for other teams. I think it was 1.16% of, of at-bats had hit by pitches last year. It was 1.32 going into Wednesday. Um, so that's up a, a bit. What's that? Like 14% total or something. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's little things like that that you can read into a bit. 
at the moment, but I, I think you've got to wait just a little bit longer to get a, a true sense for uh, how things are going to play differently in 2022 versus 2021 and how weird it is to have to have this conversation every year. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, I think it's a great question. Thank you for uh, jumping on. We have some questions in the, I have lost the live room here. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remove Nick from the stage, even though Nick is a perfectly pleasant guy. He can hang out, but uh, we have some questions in the chat. One is from Dennis and and this you can answer because uh, I haven't attempted it yet, but how has the access been to players this year? What's been different about uh, being back in a major league clubhouse? Yeah, I mean, it, it has been far closer to what it was before the pandemic. Um, you know, we are back allowed in the clubhouse uh, before games and after games, uh, which is really nice. Uh, media members have to wear masks. That's fine. Um, and so, you know, just the little things that you can go up and, and ask a player about. It's, you know, I, th- I think the hardest thing about Zoom access was like if I wanted to ask, you know, if I wanted to do a story on, you know, coach X or player X on the Mets and there were five guys I wanted to talk to, that story was going to take two weeks to, to report because <laughs> you just had to wait until all of those guys were on Zooms and you had to ask that question in front of all of your competitors and hope they're not picking up on who you're writing about. Uh, I'm, thinking, and, I'm thinking back to my SNY days and, and how it would have meant like every single Zoom chat ending with me being like, what's your favorite sandwich? <laughs> 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 Yeah, I mean, like, Thank you like for this interesting conversation about baseball. Uh, what's your favorite sandwich? We would we would joke that we knew what everyone was working on. You know, like <laughs> I was doing a story uh, involving their outfield defense last spring training, and Tony Tarasco, uh, who was the new outfield coach, and I asked like everyone who was in camp as an outfielder over the course of two and a half weeks, <laughs> Tony Tarasco and every other beat writer is like, when's that story finally coming out, Tim? Um, you know, and it's nicer now. You can work on things uh, that you know, your competitors don't know about, and you can do them much faster. Uh, you know, I can have uh, like a, a conversation on, on Wednesday morning with James McCann about Pitchcom uh, and a little bit about Chris Bassett that I might use down the line. Uh, and, you know, you can hit at different things uh, in an efficient use of your time. The big, you know, and that that's, uh, I'm really glad it's back. I wasn't sure that we would have um, that kind of access back as comprehensively as we do that it is basically what we had before the pandemic my fear was that like we wouldn't have post-game access quite the same way that they go to a a, like an nba playoff podium model Mm -hmm. which is what i think a lot of baseball has been talking about for a while i think just like being back in the clubhouse and being able to say hello to players face to face uh it just it humanizes them to us it's again you know it's it has always been harder to criticize someone when you know they might yell at you the next day in person um and it humanizes us to them as well that uh they realize like we're there every day we're not just uh avatars on a computer uh that the mets thankfully were not like some other teams who didn't even allow you to have your video up when you're asking questions on zoom some teams just had people's names uh and they blacked out the video um so you know it allows us to be like real people in front of each other both ways. And I think that that leads to uh, better coverage, more insightful coverage and fairer coverage all through. You mentioned Pitchcom just then, and you mentioned Pitchcom. You, t- you wrote about it a little bit um, on in Wednesday's game. We saw Max Scherzer and Thomas Nito really uh, seem to, Thomas Nito really seem to get into uh, a little bit of confusion over the signs. And I know Scherzer was one of the guys who said, 
Uh, he was reluctant to use it. He wanted to see how it works first. And I totally understand that. You've been working one way your entire career. He's, he's had quite a long career. Um, is that type of thing going to bring Max Scherzer over to the light side here? Because I do think Pitchcom is a, is a smart thing and a, and a, a solution to at least one of baseball's issues. I'm not a solution to the to case of play issue by any means, but just a, a, an improvement because so often it seems like the games hung up, get hung up when there's a runner on second base. Yeah, I mean, Max expressed his uh, reticence to use Pitchcom pretty vehemently. Uh, I think, you know, uh, he, he'd he be the last pitcher on the Mets staff I'd expect to use it at this point. McCann uh, estimated that, you know, 50 to 60 percent of guys are using it. We saw it uh, clearly with, with Drew Smith the other night. They had the issue where it wasn't working. Uh, and the, the funny part about that was so, you know, it's not just the pitcher and catcher who who hear the sign, hear the pitch. It's it's also like you're up the middle defense. You can have as many as five people hear it. Uh, and so, you know, Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil and Brandon Nimmo could also hear the pitch come. And w- what was happening was McCann was hitting buttons uh, and he couldn't hear it. Drew Smith couldn't hear it, but McNeil could hear it. <laughs> um, and Brandon Nimmo was hearing like a jarbled version of it uh, and was confused because he thought that, McCann was telling Drew Smith to throw a knuckleball, uh, which Drew Smith does not have in his arsenal. Uh, and so uh, that's why they had the, the meeting on the mound. You know, I think Scherzer will be will be reticent on it. I think most of the other guys have accepted, I think, quicker than I expected. You know, I didn't think this was going to be something that, that uh, the majority of pitchers, not just with the Mets, but it seems across baseball, would be using right off the bat and have grown comfortable with even in a, a compressed spring training. Of course McCann it does, said, because it means no one can steal their signs, right? Like mm-hmm. everybody's everybody's resistance to change until it can help you, right? And then you're like, oh, well, if it's, if no one's going to be able to steal the sign, then absolutely. But, I, th- I mean, you've got guys using it even when there's not someone on base, uh, just to, to streamline the process. Why not? Um, it's robots, baby. And one of the one of the intriguing elements to it, and I'm not sure exactly how this would would create an advantage for you, that the Mets have said, like, you know, even when we're using PitchCon, we might throw down some signs uh, to, to confuse the other team and vice versa. We might be, like, pretending we're using PitchCon when the signs are legit. So you don't it's know for games. sure. Um, I, you know, I don't know what that kind of gamesmanship gains you. Uh, maybe a team try, wastes effort trying to, to decode your signs when they don't mean anything. Uh, but I do like that teams are engaging in that kind of behavior. Uh, it seems like that will probably last like a month and then everyone will just say like, okay, let's just use this thing. Um, uh, right. Like, I, I mean, it's, it's hilarious and I hope they keep doing it, but it, you know, I, I don't know. It, it feels like this is, this is the way it's going. I, I want to know though, because um, I guess I didn't really think about this aspect of it. You mentioned Nimmo hearing the garbled version. What is, what is it that they're hearing? Because I would have assumed it was, like a series of beeps or something. It's is he, he's pre- pressing a distinct knuckleball button. So yeah, they're like the you know if you've seen it, there's like eight buttons around in a circle kind of thing or an oval, mm-hmm. uh, and you press you press you know each button is a different pitch, and then you've also got buttons for location. So the the pitcher would hear something like you know fastball down and away. Um, and what one of the things they're trying to work out so far is when the pitcher shakes in that situation, and then. Uh, you know, the, the players in the field hear the same thing. They hear the same, the, the actual pitch uh, and location, so they can kind of position themselves that way. And you can program it in different voices. Uh, so that's been like the Twitter discussion is what voice should your pitch com be? 
the Mets, uh, I don't think, have programmed it to a specific voice. So I think it's just what it comes with. Uh, I heard, you know, the Phillies have JT Realmuto saying it himself. McCann said that that would be easy for the Mets to set up when they figure out exactly how they want to go about it. Uh, he does not re- require a recording studio or a special microphone like this podcast does. Um, to do that, uh, you can do it pretty quickly. So, um, Why would you ever choose your own catcher's voice when, like, Samuel L. Jackson is out there? <laughs> right? you know, like, there's re- got to be someone funny you can find to, just to keep things light. Just to keep things light. Like, uh, you know, with with uh, whatever respect necessary to the the recently departed Gilbert Gottfried, like it would be pretty amazing if you were standing on the on the mound and, and looking in in the ninth inning of a of the World Series game, and you're about to make the pace of your life, and it is just Gilbert Gottfried telling you to throw a curveball. Uh, McCann was saying, you know, if you press the button. Each button, like if you hold it, it it can do a different function for you rather than if you just quickly press it. So it would be cool if like each pitch, you know, if they held it down, it it signaled like greater conviction in the pitch. And you got instead of James McCann selling you like fastball here, it's Samuel L. Jackson saying uh, that that the fastball is clearly the best pitch for this spot. Uh, In so many words, I would imagine. In so many words. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah, I I think that if you are recording and, and, you know, Actually, yes, all due disrespect to the Philadelphia Phillies. You can do better than JT Realmuto's voice. Uh, you can get, uh, look what's Charlie Day doing, right? Like he's associated with Philadelphia. He's got a, he's got a funny voice. I could go for that. Like you could go for uh, any number of Philadelphia soul musicians giving you like a very smooth uh, pitch call. I, I, I feel like you got to do better. Um, I, I want to hear more about teams innovating in that department. We don't have any more questions, Tim, so it seems like a good place to wrap up. What should we look out for for the Mets in the coming days? Yes, they have the Diamondbacks coming to town, followed by the Giants. Uh, Arizona, not as good a team uh, as San Francisco projects to be uh, this season. Uh, but, we, you know, I think it's an opportunity for the Mets, you know, to, to get another series win to see uh, how good their rotation looks uh, mo- continuing forward. Uh, the three, four, five in the rotation, uh, you know, could be David Peterson on Sunday taking, stepping in for Taiwan Walker. Uh, but, you know, Bassett and Carrasco pitched so well last weekend in Washington. Uh, if they're able to do that again, that's just really encouraging for the, the rotation as a whole. You know, Tyler McGill doing it again against Philadelphia meant a little bit more than I, th- I think doing it against Washington. Uh, and then you get into, you know, we'll have a podcast uh, before the, the entire series against the Giants. But uh, that'll be a fun series that, you know, if they get to it, uh, there will be no, you know, the 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 eight nothing stolen base will take place in that that series. That teams will be bunting for hits in twelve run games and all that. Uh, that that could be uh, a fun sideshow um, after what happened with the Giants the other night. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream Direct TV satellite free. Hey Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get Direct TV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream Direct TV over the internet now. Oh sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream Direct TV without a satellite dish. Visit DirectTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Just as I said, we had no more questions. Matthew E. popped in and with a request to join us on stage. What do you think? Can we take one more quick question? (sighs) 
fine. You know, I guess. Yeah, we're whatever. Do, we're going to do it. We're doing it. Matthew E., uh, let's be quick. Welcome, welcome aboard. <laughs> I'll, hey, make it, I'll, make, I'll make it really quick with that deep sigh. <laughs> um, I'll make it real quick. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for, for holding this today and, and appreciate the opportunity to ask a lifelong suffering Mets fan here, um, but hopefully not much longer. Um, anyway, obviously it's a really good thing that the bullpen seems to be the biggest glaring issue at this point, um, meaning that so many other things are working so well. Um, but obviously it does seem like it is, there are some, some pretty glaring points there. Um, but Sean Reed Foley, who knows, who knows if he can do what he did last year. The sticky stuff uh, affected his performance too much. Jolie Rodriguez, who knows, and, and Trevor Williams. Um, do you think they're going to make a move outside the organization, or is it most likely to bring something up, some other options up internally? I mean, if you mean in like the next two months, it's probably less likely to be outside the organization. I mean, outside of like waiver claims and those kinds of right. things, which are always churning. Um, but you know, a, a team in contention uh, in July is going to add a bullpen piece. Um, that's almost universal. So I would expect, you know, I haven't looked too deep into the future at like, you know, what good bullpen pieces might be available come July, uh, who's going to be selling off pieces. Um, but I, I would expect that, you know, in July, if the bullpen is still, you know, if the Mets are where they want to be, and if the bullpen is, is not quite what they want it to be, both things that, that seem plausible at this point in time that, uh, you know, they, they would be looking at, you know, who's a good lefty reliever to get to lock down later innings. Who's another good, uh, an additional righty. Maybe, you know, we've, we've seen the Braves kind of do that with their bullpen, especially two years ago. I think it was, um, or whatever, year, maybe two, three years, yeah, whatever year they got, you know, Melanson and a couple other pieces, Chris Martin, those guys, uh, you know, they were able to kind of rebuild their bullpen in July. And we've seen teams do that uh, with some consistency. So it, it would not that would be an expectation, I think, at this point that they do go outside the organization, but probably not until the summer. Got it. I appreciate that. And uh, do you think the Castro move was a mistake at this point or is it too early to tell? I mean, I was I thought it was a curious move. Um, I thought it was a little too looking too much for a specialized skill. Whereas like, you know, I think the thinking from the Mets side was uh, these pitchers are roughly equivalent in our mind. And one fits our roster better in Joely Rodriguez. Um, I, I think um, that I, I like Castro as a pitcher more. He's more useful for more situations because of, of what he can do against righties. Uh, you know, he's not good against, le- he's not great against lefties, but uh, he's not terrible against them. And there are more righties than lefties. Um, and he's got kind of, I think just better stuff off the bat. Um, so I thought it was it was strange in that regard. And and if you were going to give up someone, if you were going to make a trade like that, like why not just sign a, a better left-handed reliever to begin with? It wasn't like, you know, if someone had gotten hurt, if they had signed Andrew Chafin or something, and then he needs Tommy John surgery in spring training, and then you make did this you, trade. That did makes did sense. you want them to sign? Did you want them to sign Andrew Chafin? I've brought it up maybe on on this, you know, and, and it's funny because like at the start of spring training, like at the start of the off season, he was not the left-handed reliever I was pushing. For them quite the same way it was i thought brooks Rayleigh was a good fit um and he signed pretty quickly with tampa bay which you know when tampa bay signs the guy you're suggesting that makes you feel like pr- pretty good about the suggestion yeah, absolutely um but yeah like you know lefty reliever was going to be a thing once loop signed somewhere else uh and it's weird that they waited as long as they did and spent you know player capital to acquire it when uh they could have done so uh pretty cheaply on the, the free agent market 
Uh, I mean, I agree with that 100%. I'm just saying maybe maybe Andrew Chafin just had preferred not to come pitch for the Mets. Is is un- What if that's the unfortunate truth of it? It's fun. And, and look, he's on the injured list in Detroit, so it's it's not as if he's out there throwing uh, scoreless eighth and ninth innings for the Tigers right now uh, and rubbing it in the faces of, of beat reporters who suggested he would be a fit for the Mets. Anyway, it's a good question. Thank you, Matthew, for joining us. Tim, thank you, as always, for talking to me. Uh, we will be back early next week with more podcasts and, and more Mets season. Until then, peace out.